2: Thanks for tuning in to episode number 39 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In the tense weeks leading up to his inauguration, Abraham Lincoln probably didn't spare much thought to the U.S. Navy, but almost immediately after taking office in connection with the crisis at Fort Sumter, Lincoln was forced to begin working his way along a steep learning curve with regard to naval matters.
2: It was a good thing the new president was a quick student, because within a week of the fall of Sumter, he would issue a proclamation that would shape a significant element of the federal naval strategy, and after that, Abraham Lincoln would then go on to preside over the development and deployment of the largest naval force in American history up to that point.
0: Throughout the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln would take an active interest in naval matters, and in his role as Commander-in-Chief, he would step in when needed to ensure his larger strategic vision was being fulfilled. But still, Lincoln would most often defer to the judgment of two men who will play key roles in our ongoing story, Gideon Wells and Gustavus Fox.
2: Gideon Wells was Abraham Lincoln's Navy Secretary, and he was one of only two cabinet members to hold his job throughout Lincoln's administration.
0: Secretary of State William H. Seward being the other.
2: Right. But anyway, in his excellent book, Lincoln and His Admirals, Craig Simons describes Wells in this way. Quote, the 59-year-old Wells wore a wig that he had purchased years before when his hair was still light brown and only tinged with gray. He continued to wear that same wig, even though his beard was now snowy white, and the contrast was jarring. Moreover, Wells tended to wear his wig like a hat, plunking it down on his head in the morning without paying serious attention to how it rested on his balding dome, and pushing it back on his head absent mindedly as he worked at his desk. If he sneezed or shook his head violently, the wig skittered about independently. End quote. Wells' appearance led people to refer to him as Father Neptune. But anyway, Simons goes on to say, quote, Wells was open and honest with Lincoln, politically adept and yet disarmingly straightforward. He was by turns blunt, challenging, cantankerous, and tiresomely earnest. End quote. Wells from Connecticut got his seat in Lincoln's cabinet largely because of political geography. That is, at the urging of Vice President Hannibal Hamlin, Wells received New England's seat in the cabinet. But Gideon Wells actually had legitimate expertise in naval matters, including a stint as chief of the Navy's Bureau of Provisions and Clothing under President James Polk. But during the course of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln would come to rely on Wells' candor and loyalty.
0: And then Gustavus Fox, whom we've already met with regard to the Fort Sumter crisis. Fox was a former naval officer turned businessman. After the fall of Sumter, Lincoln ordered Gideon Wells to appoint Fox as chief clerk of the Navy. About Fox, Lincoln told Wells, quote, He is a live man whose services we cannot well dispense with, end quote. A few months later, in July 1861, Congress created the position of Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and the President immediately promoted Fox to that job. As Craig Simons points out, Fox then, in effect, functioned as the Chief of Naval Operations for the next four years. Fortunately for the Union, Gideon Wells and Gustavus Fox worked well together, and both men brought a great deal of passion and energy to the management of the Department of the Navy.
2: Over on the Confederate side, on April 17, 1861, just two days after Lincoln's call for 75,000 volunteers to put down the rebellion, Jefferson Davis announced that he would begin issuing letters of marque to authorize privateers. And in this episode, we want to be sure to define several terms that we'll be using, since we know we have listeners of all ages from all over the world. And unless you're really into this stuff, there's no reason you might know, for example, just what Letters of Mark or privateers are. So Letters of Mark, and that's spelled M-A-R-Q-U-E, but Letters of Mark were certificates that a country issued to private armed ships, authorizing them to attack enemy vessels. So these privately owned ships that were armed at their owner's expense and issued with letters of mark were called privateers. And letters of mark were quite literally licenses to steal. The goal for the privateer's owner was profit. So a successful privateer captain was one who captured enemy merchant vessels at minimal risk to his own ship and crew. In earlier wars, privateers have been used to capture or destroy enemy shipping by France, Britain, Denmark, Spain, and, ironically, the United States.
0: Jefferson Davis and his Secretary of the Navy, Stephen Mallory, knew that these privately owned, privately armed, privately manned ships were great deals for the Confederacy since they cost the rebel government nothing. And yet the potential strategic benefit was huge— With enough privateers, the Confederacy could strike a heavy blow at the important American shipping industry. And if Confederate privateers proved to be a large enough menace to American merchant ships, then the Federal Navy would be forced to expend considerable effort to combat them.
2: The news that the Confederacy was authorizing privateers caused a wave of panic to roll through the American shipping industry. President Lincoln quickly received a number of petitions from alarmed northern businessmen who wanted him to protect American commerce, quote, by vigorous and energetic measures, end quote. When Lincoln asked his advisors what could be done about the privateers, it was Secretary of State William Seward who suggested a blockade of the South would be an appropriate countermeasure. Seward reasoned that if rebel privateers could not leave port and get to sea, then they couldn't attack American shipping.
0: And so Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation on April 19th, just two days after Jefferson Davis's announcement.
2: And the same day that the 6th Massachusetts was attacked as it traveled through Baltimore.
0: Right. So in his proclamation, Lincoln declared that the Confederate ports were under blockade. And just to make sure we're all on the same page as to what a blockade is, a blockade generally entailed the use of warships to patrol the coastline of an enemy and thereby deny the enemy's vessels access to the open sea by trapping them within their harbors. A blockade was also designed to disrupt maritime commerce, since merchant ships had to contend with the blockading forces that sealed off enemy ports to overseas business. The loss of trade would then result in economic hardship in the enemy country. Like privateers, naval blockading had been a practice employed in previous wars, most notably by Britain during the Napoleonic
2: Wars. And so on April 19, 1861, Abraham Lincoln announced a blockade of South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. And on April 27th, the president extended the blockade to include Virginia and North Carolina. As we mentioned at the top of the show, the proclamation declaring this blockade of the Confederacy will turn out to be one of the most important decisions of Abraham Lincoln's presidency. Initially, it's a response to the threat posed by rebel privateers, but eventually, establishing and maintaining the blockade will come to be a central component of the Union's strategy for winning the war.
0: Lincoln's decision to initiate the blockade brought with it a number of difficulties. The first problems the President had to deal with regarding the blockade were of a legal and diplomatic nature. Y'all will recall that it was a central pillar of Abraham Lincoln's policy decisions that the Union remain undissolved. Lincoln insisted the Confederacy was a rebellious part of the United States, not a separate nation. And yet, according to international law, a blockade was an instrument of war between nations. So Lincoln's declaration of a blockade seemed to recognize the legitimacy of the Confederacy.
2: Realizing this, Lincoln and Seward initially tried to come up with some creative way to circumvent the legal ramifications of a blockade. In other words, they wanted to institute a blockade without calling it a blockade. They at first thought they might be able to simply announce a closure of southern ports, but when Seward tried this idea out on a group of foreign diplomats at a dinner party, the British ambassador in particular insisted his government would not play that game. If British commerce with the South was going to be interrupted, then, Lord Lyons implied, the Lincoln administration would have to actually declare a blockade and live with the legal and diplomatic ramifications.
0: And so, in the end, Lincoln's April 19th declaration used the word blockade, despite what it indicated about the legitimacy of the Confederate government. This led to Lincoln's second problem, since in his proclamation, he declared that captured privateers would be tried for piracy. So while declaring a blockade, which legally recognized the Confederacy as a warring power, Lincoln in the same proclamation thought he could say that the privateers were pirates because the Confederacy was not a legitimate government and therefore couldn't issue letters of marque. This glaring internal inconsistency soon rose up and bit Lincoln when on June 3, 1861, the USS Perry was cruising off the coast east of Charleston, and it captured the Savannah, a Confederate privateer. The men on the Savannah, 14 in all, were taken aboard the Perry, placed in irons, and eventually delivered to New York to be tried as pirates.
2: A few weeks later, the USS Albatross captured a second group of rebel privateers and took them to Philadelphia. So by midsummer, two groups of Confederates were being held, not as prisoners of war, but as per Lincoln's directive, as pirates. And I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but the penalty for piracy was death by hanging. <laughs>
0: And so in mid-July, General-in-Chief Winfield Scott arrived at the White House and gave Abraham Lincoln a letter that had been passed across the front lines in Virginia under a white flag. The letter was from none other than Jefferson Davis, and the Confederate president warned that he would order the execution of a Union prisoner of war for each member of a privateer crew hung for piracy. (laughs)
2: Officially, Lincoln would not acknowledge a communication from the chief executive of the Confederacy, but neither could Abraham Lincoln ignore the warning. Well, it came to pass that the New York jury failed to reach a verdict concerning the crew of the Savannah, but the Philadelphia jury convicted its privateers and sentenced them all to hang. In response, the Confederate Congress duly authorized Jefferson Davis to select an equal number of Union prisoners of war and place them in holding cells, ready to be executed. Abraham Lincoln took this threat of retaliation seriously, and to his credit, he wasn't willing to sacrifice the lives of Union prisoners just to maintain his public position that privateers were pirates. And so the hangings were postponed indefinitely, and eventually the Confederate privateers, were quietly exchanged as prisoners of war,
0: besides diplomatic and legal problems, initiating the blockade also presented the Union with more practical challenges, like the significant material and logistical difficulties of instituting an effective blockade in his book, War on the Waters, the Union and confederate navies eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five James Mcpherson says quote. To patrol a coastline of 3,500 miles from Virginia to Texas with 189 harbors and coves where cargo could be landed was a Herculean task. Only a dozen of these harbors had railroad connections to the interior, but imposing an effective blockade on just these ports would require large numbers of ships to cover the multiple channels and rivers and inland waterways radiating from or connecting several of them. At the war's beginning, the Union Navy did not have enough ships on hand to do more than show the flag at a few of these waterways." In April
2: 1861, the U.S. Navy was ill-prepared to effectively blockade the Confederacy. At the war's beginning, the Navy had only about a dozen warships in American waters, and five of them were sailing vessels that could perhaps catch other sailing ships attempting to evade the blockade, but were of little use against steamers. Twenty-six other warships, 17 of them steam-powered, were scattered on distant patrol stations around the globe. And of the Navy's six new steam frigates and 13 new steam sloops, constructed during a major naval build-up since 1855, Only two of the sloops and none of the frigates were operational in home waters. In fact, five of the six frigates were laid up at Navy Yards for repairs. Orders went out to most of the ships in foreign waters to return home, but their return would take time since they were spread around the world from the Mediterranean Sea to the coasts of Africa and China.
0: Obviously, therefore, the first order of business for the Navy Department was somehow to obtain a force that might prove capable of enforcing the President's declaration, and so Gideon Wells embarked on a crash program to buy and charter as many merchant steamers, passenger steamers, and even New York ferry boats as he could that were capable of conversion into armed vessels for blockade duty. Eventually, over 170 such ships were purchased from various sources. In addition, Wells contracted for the building of 23 new ships of about 500 tons each, which had to be built in three months. Hence, they were famously known as the 90-day gunboats. The Navy Department also contracted for the construction of 14 screw sloops and 12 sidewheelers, and those began to come online in the fall of 1861. Lord Lyons, the British ambassador, was impressed. In May 1861, he reported to London that, quote, The greatest activity prevails in the United States Navy Yards. Vessels are being fitted out with the utmost speed, and many have been purchased with a view to establish the blockade effectively.
1: End quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
2: the Union naval build-up included men as well as ships. On the eve of the war, the U.S. Navy numbered about 7,600 enlisted men and 1,200 officers. On May 3, 1861, Abraham Lincoln ordered the recruitment of an additional 18,000 men for terms of one to three years. Within two months of Lincoln's announcement, the Union Navy had expanded to 13,000 men and about 2,000 officers. By December 1862, the total number of naval personnel had grown to about 28,000 sailors and officers, plus 12,000 mechanics and laborers employed in Navy yards. In early 1865, the Union Navy reached its maximum strength of 51,500 men and 16,800 mechanics and laborers. By contrast, the Confederate Navy reached the peak of its strength at the end of 1864, with just under 5,000 enlisted men and officers.
0: If the Union was ill-prepared at the start of the war to effectively blockade the Confederacy, it still was better prepared for a naval war than the Confederacy, which began its bid for independence with no Navy at all. The man whose job it was to create a Confederate Navy virtually from scratch was former Florida Senator Stephen R. Mallory, who Jefferson Davis named as his Secretary of the Navy. Mallory would be one of only two cabinet members to hold his office throughout the war.
2: In his book, The Civil War at Sea, Craig Simons writes, With his round, avuncular face framed by a leprechaun-like fringe of beard, Mallory was less than heroic-looking but he possessed both the temperament and the expertise needed to preside over the thankless job of conjuring a Confederate Navy. Born in the West Indies, Mallory's family had moved to Key West when he was 10 years old, and he grew to manhood in the rough-and-tumble maritime community, where the principal business was the rather ghoulish practice of salvaging the many ships that were wrecked trying to round the Keys. Mallory developed his judicious temperament while adjudicating the conflicting claims of wreckers and ship owners. Elected to the Senate, Mallory served for many years as chairman of the Naval Affairs Committee, which gave him a familiarity not only with naval administration, but also with most of the personalities he would have to deal with during the war. End quote.
0: Mallory recognized that the fledgling Confederate Navy could not possibly hope to match the Union ship for ship and must therefore seek to overcome inequality of numbers with innovation, such as the use of armored warships and torpedoes.
2: And back in those olden days, a torpedo wasn't what we think of as a torpedo. Uh, back in those days, a torpedo was what they called explosive mines that would, you know, be set afloat or anchored in harbors or rivers. Exactly. Exactly.
0: We also wanted to mention that while the Confederate Navy pretty much had to start from scratch as far as ships were concerned, it did begin the war with a number of veteran officers who resigned from the U.S. Navy. Interestingly, while less than half of the Southern-born Navy officers resigned, more than two-thirds of Southern-born Army officers resigned and threw in their lot with the Confederacy.
2: On April 20th, 1861, Stephen Mallory and his not-yet-existent Confederate Navy got a huge windfall with the capture of the Gosport Navy Yard at Norfolk in the far southeast corner of Virginia. By the 1850s, Gosport was considered the U.S. Navy's premier installation. It had the largest dry dock in the Western Hemisphere, major repair facilities, including a foundry and excellent machine shops, and then there was the ordnance that was stored there. In early 1861, 2,800 barrels of gunpowder and over a 1,000 naval guns were stored at the sprawling Navy Yard. Many of the guns were massive artillery pieces, some of the largest in the world. In addition to all that hardware, when war broke out, the Navy had 10 vessels laid up at Norfolk in various stages of repair. Six of those ships were old sailing vessels, but the other four, especially the 40-gun steam frigate Merrimack, were relatively modern.
0: The commander of the Gosport Navy Yard was 68-year-old Charles McCauley, who had been in the U.S. Navy since before Abraham Lincoln was born. McCauley had had a distinguished career, but he'd achieved command of Gosport by seniority rather than by ability. In an era when the nation's armed forces didn't offer pensions, the Navy maintained a tradition of appointing older captains to supervise its yards. On April 10th, with tensions building over the crisis at Fort Sumter, and with Virginia wavering over the question of secession, Gideon Wells sent a curious piece of correspondence to Macaulay. Wells wrote, In view of the peculiar condition of the country and of events that have already transpired, it becomes necessary that great vigilance should be exercised in guarding the public interest and property committed to your charge. It is therefore deemed important that the steamer Merrimack should be in condition to proceed to Philadelphia or to any other yard, should it be deemed necessary, or in case of danger from unlawful attempts to take possession of her, that she may be placed beyond their reach. Indeed, it is desirable that all the shipping and stores should be attended to, and should you think an additional force necessary, or that other precautions are required, you will immediately apprise the department." In the meantime, exercise your own judgment in discharging the responsibility that devolves on you. It is desirable that there should be no steps taken to give needless alarm, but it may be best to order most of the shipping to sea or to other stations. Please keep the department advised of the condition of affairs and of any cause for apprehension should any exist. End quote.
2: So Wells was telling Macaulay to do nothing that might give alarm to the Virginians but that he probably ought to order most of the ships to head out to sea, especially the Merrimack. How Macaulay was to accomplish that, under the circumstances, was unclear, especially since, as Wells was aware, there weren't enough sailors at Gosport to man all the ships in the yard, and the Merrimack's faulty engines were in the middle of being rebuilt. When Wells sent a second note hot on the heels of the first, Emphasizing the importance of moving the Merrimack out of there as soon as it could be readied, Macaulay replied that the yard's chief engineer said the ship couldn't be made ready for sea in under a month. But Wells immediately sent the Navy's chief engineer, Benjamin Isherwood, to Gosport, and by pressing the yard's laborers and mechanics into working around the clock, Isherwood could report on April 17th that the ship would be able to get up steam and depart the next day.
0: But Macaulay had reservations about moving any ship out of the yard unless absolutely necessary. He was convinced the secessionists of the Norfolk area were about to explode into action at the slightest provocation, and Macaulay was keenly aware of Wells's instructions to do nothing that might alarm the Virginians. In addition to his own inclination to act cautiously, most of Macaulay's subordinate officers at Gosport were Virginians, most of whom would resign from the service and go over to the Confederacy. But those younger officers convinced Macaulay that any signs of moving the Merrimac would provoke the trigger-happy local militia already gathering near the Navy Yard.
2: After a loyal officer left Gosport and rushed to Washington to report to Gideon Wells that Macaulay, quote, seemed stupefied, bewildered, and wholly unable to act, the Navy Secretary dispatched the USS Pawnee from the Washington Navy Yard. The Pawnee left on Friday, April 19th, and on board were a contingent of Marines and Captain Hiram Paulding. Wells gave Paulding orders to take command of all naval personnel at Gosport and to move whatever ships he could out of danger.
0: It took the Pawnee almost a day to reach Fort Monroe, 14 miles from Norfolk. By chance, two Massachusetts regiments had just arrived at the fort after being at sea for days. Most of the soldiers were still woozy with seasickness, but still an army captain named Wright on board the Pawnee appropriated the 340 and some odd men of the 3rd Massachusetts and hustled them out of the fort and aboard the warship. If the Massachusetts soldiers were unhappy at being back aboard another ship so soon, they would have quickly set aside those feelings and focused on the task at hand when they noticed the sailors loading on the cannon the cannon on the Pawnee's port side. A few moments later the bay staters themselves were issued twenty-five rounds of ammunition and told that the Virginians may have artillery on the river bank and that if the secessionists opened fire on the Pawnee, the infantrymen were to try and pick off the enemy gunners.
2: But even as the Pawnee steamed toward Gosport, Macaulay had already made a crucial decision about the Navy Yard. Under mounting pressure, Macaulay knew that he could probably only count on the loyalty of about 60 of the base's Marines, as well as around 400 seamen on board both the USS Cumberland and USS Pennsylvania. There was no way he could guard the huge Navy Yard with those men. Meanwhile, Macaulay believed that the commander of the Virginia militia, A fellow named Taliaferro had 5,000 armed men in the Norfolk area. In reality, Taliaferro had, at most, 500 essentially unarmed volunteers. But on Saturday morning, April twentieth, Macaulay was told that secessionists were placing cannon near the mouth of the Elizabeth River to prevent ships from leaving the Navy Yard. The news, while not true, pushed Macaulay into making his decision. And so in the early afternoon of the 20th, he ordered most of the unmanned ships at Gosport scuttled. Once that was done, and while those ships settled gradually into the river's water, Macaulay had men go around the yard, spiking as many cannon as possible.
0: Spiking is a way to disable cannon by ramming slender metal rods or extra-long nails into the gun's vents or touch holes, so they cannot be fired.
2: Exactly. Well, by the time the small force accomplished as much as they could, it was almost completely dark. And then a lookout shouted that he saw a vessel approaching the yard, and drums beat to quarters, and sailors on board both the Cumberland and Pennsylvania prepared to fire on the strange ship.
0: At the last moment, the men realized the incoming intruder was actually the Pawnee. After Macaulay boarded the Pawnee and explained the situation to Paulding, the newly arrived officer decided the best he could do was continue the destruction Macaulay had started, and then depart the yard with whatever ships and men he could. Ironically, since most of the blame for the disaster at Gosport would be heaped on poor Macaulay, it was actually him who, considering the new arrivals, was actually disposed to defend Gosport. But then Paulding disagreed and made the decision to destroy whatever they could and then depart.
2: Paulding sent teams of men rushing out into the yard to further damage the guns that had previously been spiked, to set ablaze the upper portions of those ships, including the Merrimack, had been scuttled and settled into the water, to fire or blow up as many buildings and repair shops as they could, and, perhaps most importantly, try to wreck the invaluable dry dock. When that last group of men arrived at the monstrous dry dock, they realized their task would be formidable. The officer in charge decided their only chance was to attempt to destroy the dock's large pumping gallery. So the men placed a ton of gunpowder next to the pumping machinery, and when all was ready, waited for the signal rocket from the Pawnee that would be the sign for all the men in the yard to finish their work and head for the departing ships. In his book, Dissonance, The Turbulent Days Between Fort Sumter and Bull Run, David Detzer describes what happened when that signal rocket went up at 4.20 a.m. Inside the Navy Yard, men saw the rocket leap into the sky. They lit their matches and applied them. In seconds, things began to burst into flame, simultaneously across an expanse as big as a small city. The mass and spars of great warships became candles. Buildings appeared to explode, their windows shattering. The sky turned red and yellow, becoming as bright as high noon, the leaping flames in stark contrast to billowing smoke. The war of the fires could be heard for miles. The heat was intense. End quote.
0: As Paulding's men raced for safety, Taliaferro and the other secessionists watching the important Navy Yard go up in flames were incensed that the Federals had maliciously destroyed valuable property that they believed rightly belonged to Virginia. But when the Virginians entered the abandoned Yard, they found that the Federals actually didn't have enough time to carry out the destruction effectively, To their delight, the Virginians discovered that much of the giant facility was entirely undamaged. In fact, even the dry dock had been saved by a fellow named C.F.W. Spotswood, a Virginian who had just resigned his commission in the Navy. When he saw the flames, the quick-thinking Spotswood had rushed into the yard, gone to the dry dock, and flooded it enough to douse the slow-burning fuses.
2: And then besides thousands of shot and shells... The Virginians also found one thousand two hundred cannon, including over fifty big dahlgrens, which were the U.S. Navy's most advanced naval guns. The loss of all those cannon to the Confederacy was an absolute disaster for the Union. Guns and ammunition from Gosport were soon on their way to every corner of the South, where they would be emplaced in the dozens of new and existing forts the Confederacy was building or upgrading to defend its coastline and rivers.
0: And then of course there was the Merrimack. Although scuttled and then burned to the waterline, her hull and even her imperfect engines had survived intact, and she'll be reincarnated by the Confederates in a much different form. And so this isn't the last we've heard from the Merrimack on the podcast.
2: Before we start to wrap up this show, we just wanted to say that we'll revisit the topic of the blockade in future episodes as we continue with our story. The impact of the blockade on the Confederacy has been a hotly debated topic, but we'll just say right here up front that we think that while at first it existed more on paper than on the water, as the blockade then was tightened it eventually was one of the most important pieces of the Union's overall strategy for winning the war. and Admittedly, the blockade never succeeded in completely shutting down all foreign trade with the South. But nevertheless, the shortages caused by the blockade, combined with the drastic reduction of cotton exports to Europe, were major factors in causing the runaway inflation that ruined the Confederacy's economy And crippled its war effort.
0: And then the last thing we wanted to sneak in here is to say that while Confederate privateers enjoyed some initial success in the very early stages of the war, privateers soon faded from the picture as the Union's blockade tightened and a new maritime industry was created in the South blockade running.
2: But blockade running is another one of those topics we'll cover in the future. So you guys will just have to stay tuned for all that.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is War on the Waters, the Union and Confederate Navies, 1861 to 1865, by James McPherson.
2: And hey, this is a James McPherson book, so really, do we need to say anything else? Well, we will add that War on the Waters is McPherson's latest Civil War book, um, having just come out last year in 2012. Uh, But as always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
0: Also on the website, we just put up a post with a link that some of y'all may want to check out. You see, each week on Facebook, we put up photos and quotes and stuff that relate to each week's episode, but we know that some of y'all aren't on Facebook. So we started a board on Pinterest where we're putting up the photos and quotes, so y'all can also check them out there.
2: And like Tracy said, we just put up a post on the website with that link to the Pinterest board. And, you know, I'll just say that during the course of the podcast, we've really been excited about combining these quotes and photos and thinking about how by the time we finish the podcast, we'll have a pretty amazing collection of them that span the entire Civil War era, as well as Reconstruction. So anyway, even if you aren't on Facebook, we wanted you to be able to check them out, and so you can find them on Pinterest.
0: And then we have two special thank yous. The first is to Andrew B. for his donation to the podcast. We appreciate that very much. And we also want to thank Spirit with Music for allowing us to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music at the beginning and end of every episode. And thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, take
1: care.
2: Thanks, everyone. Bye. (laughs)
0: 20th <laughs> go ahead sorry
2: i can't go ahead now <laughs>